Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Oh, my name is Leslie, Leslie Carroll. I, I'm not the kind to tell a joke, to start pa party conversation, not at all. That's the last thing I would do. <laughs> I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. And usually we start the show with someone telling us a joke to break the ice, but we figure Leslie Caron not telling a joke is just as good. <laughs> she, of course, starred in the classic movies Gigi and An American in Paris, and she's the first of many movie folks you're going to hear on this, our first ever all-movie episode. Yes, in the next hour, we'll hear from the likes of David Cronenberg, Terry Gilliam, Miranda July, and John C. Riley. But first, the news in 3D. And podcasters, to simulate the full radio experience, this is the part where you'd pause and listen to the NPR newscast. Otherwise, on with the show. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. And today we are hosting an all-movie dinner party. It's summer blockbuster season, so we thought we'd assemble some of our favorite pieces talking about film and talking with people who make them. Apologies in advance. Nothing blows up during this episode, and Earth does not come under attack. Nope. Last time that happened on the radio, Orson Welles got in serious trouble. Yeah, but speaking <laughs> of dark directors, however... We're yes. going to set the mood by sharing some wisdom about movies from David Cronenberg. He is known for directing deeply disturbing films like The Fly and the Oscar-nominated Eastern Promises. So we asked him if movies were a way to exercise his demons. No, absolutely not. It, uh, to me, filmmaking is not therapy. For me, the, making movies is, is a joy. It's a pleasure. It's not sort of the painful solving of a terrible secret problem. It's actually, you've got to remember that there's a huge component of childlike play in making movies. We are, you know, putting on mustaches and pretending that we're people that we're not. And that's what kids do that. And they take great joy out of that. And it, to think of that as therapeutic is really to diminish the, the reality of it. You got that, ladies and gentlemen? So in the spirit of David Cronenberg, we pledge not to take movie makers too seriously in this show. Coming up, we've got actor John C. Riley imitating a crow. You'll hear Val Kilmer as Mark Twain insulting Val Kilmer. It's a great moment. Yeah. And here's 80s teen star Molly Ringwald back in 2010 showing Rico one of her favorite tricks. I can bark like a dog incredibly realistically. <laughs> it just so happens I have a microphone here to record the proof. Make you close your eyes though, so you get the full effect. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> that was good, right? <laughs> that was good. It was really good. Can you do more than one? Yeah, I can. I'm gonna make you close your eyes again. <laughs> Where and how, why the hell did you learn to do that? I think <laughs> I'm. How did I do it? I think I had a dog and I was trying to sort of communicate with a dog, you know, at age eight or nine. And I discovered that I can make the same sound. But does it work? Do you, are you like the Pied Piper of dogs? I am. I have no idea what I'm saying, but they get very excited. Ladies and gentlemen, actress Molly Ringwald. I will, <laughs> I will tell my grandkids that I witnessed that. Rat pack nothing, wolf pack. More weird stuff with actors later. But first, this is a dinner party, so time for cocktails. 
This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history and give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our box office record-setting history lesson with booze. And since this is a movie-centric episode, we have a movie-centric history for you. Yes. In 1928, the first feature film with actual dialogue premiered. Now, some at your dinner party will know it was The Jazz Singer starring Al Jolson. Michelle Philippi is here with some things they won't know. The jazz singer saved a movie studio and killed its CEO. His name was Sam Warner, one of the four brothers behind Warner Brothers. Back then it was a struggling studio and its biggest star was a dog, Rin Tin Tin. Sam was determined to change that with something called Vitaphone. It was a process that synced sound from a record with images on a screen. No one thought it was a big deal, even Sam's brothers, especially after they released the first Vitaphone feature, Don Juan. It had sound effects, a music score, and it raked in tons of cash. Just not as much as it cost to make. The studio was nearly broke. But not for long. The Jazz Singer opened on October 6, 1927, and the audience went nuts when singer Al Jolson uttered the first line of dialogue in any feature film. Wait a minute, wait a minute, you ain't heard nothing yet. It was a blockbuster. Warner Brothers hit the big time. Sam didn't live to see it, though. He'd been so busy with the movie, he hadn't cared for his abscessed teeth, which infected his brain and killed him the night before the jazz singer's debut. Goodbye. So that was the kind of sad history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. On the line is Maxwell Britton. He's a bartender at Freeman's Restaurant in the Lower East Side of New York City where the jazz singer is set. Max, what drink does the story inspire you to make? I was really touched by the story of Sam Warner. Yeah. So it made me want to kind of do something in a celebration, and obviously champagne would lead somebody to celebrate. Oh, that's very nice. To celebrate a life instead of being sad about the death. Of course. Also, just to bring a little bit more of the irony into it, this is kind of just a variation of a classic cocktail called the Corpse Reviver Number 2. The Corpse Reviver? Yeah, and it kind of ties into Sam Warner because of the Vitaphone, bringing the actors more life. Nice. And uh, how is this made? So the Corpse Reviver is... Gin, fresh lemon juice, Cointreau, Lille Blanc, and absinthe. All right. The cocktail that I'm doing is essentially the same ingredients topped off with champagne, or as some people might call it, a corpse survivor royale. Well, that's lovely. But I, I do have one suggestion, though. What's that? The character in the movie is the son of a cantor who becomes a pop star. Right. So could you replace the champagne with, like, Manischewitz? Sure. <laughs> no, <Why> you not? can't. <laughs> How about we do a Manischewitz back? <sighs> yeah, why not? We can do that. And ladies and gentlemen, we have the recipe for the Corpse Reviver Royale, Sans Medeshevitz, no worries, on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And since we're on the subject of movie sound, we thought we'd bring you an expert on the subject. Mm. Last year, sound designer Gary Rydstrom provided us with what we call a guest list. Gary did the Oscar-nominated sound design for the movie War Horse, and he directs animated movies. He also did the sound for a little indie film called Titanic. Mm. Might have heard of. Here he is with a list that's a feast for the ears. Hi, this is Gary Rydstrom. I'm a sound designer for film, and I also directed the English-language version of The Secret World of Arietti. Here's my list of my three favorite sound achievements in movies. Number one, 
Wiley Coyote falling to his death, a near death, uh, Treg Brown, who was the sound designer for those Warner Brothers shorts, his trick was he never used an appropriate sound. And since falling coyotes don't really whistle, the fact that he used this classic artillery whistle basically for a falling coyote cracks me up every time. The Roadrunner cartoons and the work that Treg Brown did for the sound for them were great use of real sounds, you know, ricochets, explosions, uh, early aircraft. Not musical or synthesized or fake. They're real sounds used in a very funny way. And this, the same sound happens over and over again in every one of the Roadrunner cartoons. Wally Cody falls, he makes this whistle, hits the ground. The timing of it's exactly the same. The sound's exactly the same every time. And I laugh every time. Beep, beep. Number two, the demon voice in The Exorcist, which when I was a kid, I saw The Exorcist scared the heck out of me. Well, then let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. And then years later, I found that they recorded this actress, Mercedes McCambridge, and a really fun trick that I thought was ingenious. They would take Mercedes McCambridge's demon-esque vocals. Play it backwards, and then have Linda Blair mouth in sync to those backward recordings played on the set. There was something really off about that. Really, was so ingenious. It was one of those early memories of movie going for me. I remember how scary that was. Imagine you know, demon voice. If I were to ask to do a demon voice, there's so many things we could do that would be laughable, but. That, that scared me right from the get-go, so they got it exactly right. Number three, Darth Vader's breathing. If anyone were to come up with a list of the most iconic sounds in film history, Ben Burt probably designed nine out of ten of them. So Ben Burt did Darth Vader's breathing, and the first time you hear it in Star Wars, you already know this character. Something about that sound felt ominous and mechanical and inhuman and interesting. And what I like about it as a sound guy is it's a really simple sound. As you've been put a microphone inside an aqualung breathing device and recorded the breathing. It's been a good lesson for me over the years. If you think a complicated sound is going to be great, you're usually wrong. It's better to pick one simple, perfect sound. So one of my favorite was there's a pteranodon in the second Jurassic Park in Lost World, Pterodactyl Pteranodon. And I was looking for the perfect screech. And I was flossing my teeth one day and I had this Toms of Maine dental floss box and I pulled out this floss and made this squealing sound that turned out to be perfect Pteranodon scream. Which, you know, maybe Toms of Maine can do something with the marketing, I don't know. <laughs> The guest list from seven-time Oscar-winning sound designer Gary Rydstrom, and that was, of course, the majestic dental floss, excuse me, pteranodon, you heard at the end there. <laughs> Somehow that moment is less awe-inspiring, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, but I have to admit, Rico, I'm a little disappointed Gary didn't select the beatboxing in the Fat Boys' 1987 <laughs> magnum opus, Disorderlies. Yeah. That was some great sound. Interestingly, they made their beats by slapping Colgate toothpaste tubes together. Oh. Huh. 
<laughs> Who yeah. knew? It's just the bathrooms of Wonderland. So Hollywood's gone from the silent era up through mega million dollar sound design. And this year, back to silence. The 2012 Oscar winner for Best Picture was, of course, the silent film The Artist. Here's a bit of Rico's interview with the film's director, who also won an Oscar for it. Michel Azanavicius, welcome. Thank you very much. And thank you for uh, not making fun of me for butchering your name, as I'm sure I just did. No, actually, you did it very well. I've been some uh, worse experiences. What is the worst butchering of your name you've ever heard? I think it's uh, one of the greatest actors in the world, Robert De Niro. <laughs> he gave me an award, and uh, when he called me, he said, Michel, as I chef, you should have a shorter name, man. <laughs> That's so... I met him two weeks after, and when he saw me, he said, Hazanavicious! He spent <laughs> two weeks to learn how to say my name, so it was very flattering for me. So you didn't punch him out or anything? No, and he's dangerous. I've seen the movies. He's really dangerous. I don't want to punch him. All right, let me, I'll ask you some actual questions about your movie now. How tired are you of talking about silent films? You've become sort of like the spokesperson for silent films through this movie. Beyond what you can uh, imagine. I am really tired. The worst, I mean, when I speak to a journalist like you are, it's okay because I'm doing my job. The worst is when you, you go home and they ask you the same question than the journalists. Given that, would you do another silent film knowing that you are now the silent film guy in the eyes of the world? No, I love to make this one. And I had this movie in mind for many, many years. But I think if I make another one, it will be in many years because I don't want to be what you just say, I mean, the silent guy. I won't make that mistake. So, Brendan, there you have it. No chance of the artist part two. Yeah, in which all the actors' voices are dubbed by James Earl Jones. <laughs> be amazing. It's too bad. I would pay to see that. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a break. Coming up, Val Kilmer, Miranda July, and John C. Riley. when our all-movie dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that helps you win your dinner party. Here's talk show legend Dick Cavett remembering Groucho Marx. Groucho left the party once early in Los Angeles with a rather snooty hostess who said, Leaving, Mr. Marx? And Groucho said, I've had a wonderful evening, but this wasn't it. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and we played that clip because this is a special all-movie episode of The Dinner Party. Coming up, we'll hear from some folks who were sure throw parties even Groucho would love, yeah. including director Miranda July and author Jackie Collins. Especially Jackie Collins. Yes. But first, we hear from an actor. Val Kilmer is well-known for his work in movies like The Doors, Batman Forever, and Tombstone. But he's also an experienced stage actor. This year, he put on a one-man play about Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, called Citizen Twain. When we had him on the show to answer our listeners' etiquette questions, we asked him what about Twain caught his interest. In many, many ways, he's the first stand-up comedian in American history. He just went on stage and talked like he spoke. There was an oratory style back then, and Twain just didn't do any of that. He just went on stage smoking a cigar and, and saying, hey, hi, how are you? Like he was in a bar and just started telling <laughs> stories, and people loved it. There's not a comedian alive that doesn't worship him. Every time I say, I just say his name, and they get all misty-eyed like I'm talking about Cindy Crawford. <laughs> so we told our audience we were going to have you on, and they asked some questions to Mark Twain himself. So is that cool? 
I will do my best. <laughs> Mr. Right. Twain, it's a, it's a pleasure to meet you, first of all. Uh, here's our first question. This comes from Jim via Facebook. He writes, Mr. Clemens, what would you suggest a cigar aficionado such as yourself could do to gain acceptance in today's hypocritical, quote, health conscious society. Surely the occasional cigar in private or public can't be as hazardous to society as the continuous barrage of deadly fast food and health sabotaging advertising we are exposed to every minute of the day. And he goes on in, in a similar fashion, does Jim. So what do you think? How to be a, a cigar smoker in modern society? Well, I do have several rules about the habit. Okay. Uh, one is that I think is a complete misnomer that it's impossible to quit. I've done it thousands of times. <laughs> one of my rules That's... is to uh, never smoke more than one cigar at a time. All right. And the other is never, never smoke when asleep. Oh, but as long as you stick to those two rules, you're pretty okay. Just light up whenever. Certainly. Moderation in all things is my key. All right. We have another question, Mr. Twain. This comes from Michelle, and she says, Mr. Clemens, in these politically acrimonious times, how can one keep a political discussion from devolving into a schoolyard name-calling session, or worse yet, fisticuffs? Fisticuffs. Well, I feel like we've all got to calm down. Mm. Once we realize we're all mad, then life seems to make more sense. <laughs> Just uh, treat it as a comedic exercise, which you often have to do when you think of government, <laughs> and understand that every 20 or 30 years we flip to the exact opposite, like the radical invents the ideas, and then when he's worn them out, the conservative adopts them. Mm. <laughs> That's an interesting idea. Now, this isn't to do with the present uh, political climate. This is history. You, it's impossible to read history and not see how we ebb and flow. And But what makes America great is that we're truly dynamic. Mm. Like people talk about New Yorkers. I still imagine that Irish cop and a hard-talking dude from the Bronx that looks like Telly Savalas. <laughs> but, but in fact, I think we're up to 44% of the people that live in New York City are from somewhere else on the planet. Mm. So mm. when you say a New Yorker today, you're really talking about everywhere on earth. Mm. You can't really posture it as a liberal or conservative. The country's about people coming together with different points of view. Yes. And the other, speaking of the acrimonious times, it's a solid rule that I always apply. If you just give your enemy a compliment, if you can't get a compliment any other way, just pretend you're like Congress and give yourself a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just wow. know, by the way, I'm, I'm surprised that you are aware of Telly Savalas. Well, yes, I'm dead. So uh, <laughs> sometimes the Almighty throws me around the space-time continuum. Incredible. And that's interesting. Was Telly Savalas jealous of your hair? Because you have great hair. Telly is a very, very sweet and sensitive lover. <laughs> I have heard. Not jealous of a thing. Uh, I'm jealous of his comedic timing. What a celebrity. Yeah, that is he true. Was. Telly he can was. do it all. Uh, all right, let's move on to our third question from Patricia in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, Patricia writes, I have lived for about six years in a two-family house with a shared backyard. The other half of the house was purchased by a couple a few months ago. 
How do I tell my new neighbors that I plan to raise bees and chickens this spring? <laughs> I know exactly what to do. Don't say a word. But the first thing you do, don't say a thing. You just purchase a bison and a kangaroo. <laughs> just a- why, why a bison and a kangaroo? Because by the time we get to the spring, they will love your bees and your chickens. <laughs> I see. You raise the bar of annoyance first and then... That's right. That's right. Just change it up a little. All right. All right. Very clever. Well, actually, you know what? I have another last question for you, Mr. Twain, since we have you. How was it working with Val Kilmer? Yeah. He has a bit of a reputation. Well, I don't want to gossip. I don't have any use for it, but um, he is unpleasant. Uh, He's a... First of all, he's written things in the play that he wants me to say as myself. That's not just un-Christian, that's un-American. Yeah, putting words in someone else's mouth. That is French. (laughs) That's almost French, you're right. Oh, my God. It's it's unreasonable. (laughs) I think he he got a big head back there in the 90s when... When he was in Batman Forever. Well, who wouldn't? I, I do appreciate it's not lost on me that he's suddenly at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. <laughs> I saw Michael Keaton floating around the other day talking <laughs> to Luella Parsons. Oh, good. But I hope, I hope by Friday he's humbled into a, because we're supposed to participate in the question and answer together after the play. So I hope he calms down by then. Maybe it's just opening night nerves. He's a pro, right? Because I think Val Kilmer. Was, he went to Juilliard as a young man, the youngest person at the time to ever get in at 17. So I think he's an acting pro. I think he'll be able sure, to Sure, you're in good deliver. company. Yes, uh, he's, he's certainly accomplished, but he's, uh, may I say, he has trouble taking direction. <laughs> that's, as, that's, that's as far as I can go. <laughs> All right. Well, Samuel Clemens, we're not going to tell him you said that. No. Um, he won't listen anyway. You could rent a skywriting machine. He won't care. <laughs> well, I'm very glad that we got to talk to you, and thanks a lot for uh, telling our audience how to behave. My pleasure. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed that segment. Yeah. And, Brendan, it turns out Val is also working on a screenplay, actually, about Twain's life. Well, I wonder who will cast as Twain. I, <laughs> I don't know. See. Okay, so turning from America's past to the future. That's a pun. Yes, it is. Yeah. The Future is the name of a film that writer and director Miranda July released last summer. It was the follow-up to her indie hit, Me, You, and Everyone We Know. When we met, I asked her what it was like being Miranda July. Well, you do a lot of staring out of this window, looking at people swimming in a pool. and um, You stare longingly at those folks in the pool? Well, I, I'm amazed that they're not concerned about sun damage or getting burned. Um, my next thought is, could I get on one of the pink floaty things in my skirt and blouse without getting wet? And I've had a lot. I don't think I could. This is radio. We could pretend you're doing that right now. Right. No one will know. Okay. Whoa, whoa. I'm all Careful. False. Splash. I should point out that we're in a hotel in Hollywood and there are people sunbathing right outside. And I'm here to interview you about your new movie, The Future. And I was wondering if you could tell me what it's about. Okay. It's a simple one. Right. I'm the worst at this. I managed to get through the whole process without ever being good at describing it. Um, It's about a couple who's getting ready to adopt a cat. And this shifts their perspective about time and space. That's not even accurate. That's sort of accurate. I think the problem is that the things that I make, like the stories are often kind of boring or even a little clunky. So the any sort of grace or excellence 
comes more from the inner world of the characters um, and, and how that's shown. So it doesn't work at the pitch level. So you play the main character, Sophie, and she, like you, is 30-something from L.A., but that's kind of where the similarities end, right? Because she seems to be paralyzed creatively in other parts of her life, unlike you. Right. That's true uh, to some degree. Yeah, it's like I am I got married while I was making the... You know, I... Uh, but then again, like, I'm usually trying to show my inner world. And so inside, it's pretty Sophie-like. There's a fair amount of paralysis or fear of paralysis and... I could go through her whole journey of failing and then giving up on herself and then fleeing her life and her soul. And I could do that in like two seconds, just in my mind through like a panic attack. So, so sort of slowing that down and really acting it out in real time seemed interesting. It seemed like if this is the kind of thing that you're going to sort of hurt yourself with again and again mentally, yeah, maybe it's worth getting into. Well, we have a couple of questions we ask of every guest on our show. And uh, the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked? There's so many of them. <laughs> where to begin? Uh, where do you get your ideas from? Always seems like I'm just whatever I say is going to be a lie. You know, that's like a real reach for me to even respond to that. Um, why? Because they just come so readily to you? and you. No, it's just like more existential than they know that question, you know, and, and yet I'm supposed to give like a, well, I just sit at this one bus stop and like whoever walks by, you know, I don't know what the expectation is, but I, I always seem to fail it, I think. Our other question is, tell us something we don't know. Okay. <laughs> this is something I'm really glad has never come out. And in fact, there was just this big article in the New York times and they refer to my childhood name as Mimi but they got it wrong that isn't your childhood name yeah my childhood name was Mandy really <laughs> yeah which is so embarrassing something about it just seems like when my when my husband really wants to sort of get my goat he'll call me Mandy Grossinger <laughs> and Grossinger is your original family name not July yeah although my given name is Miranda but you know there are a few years a lot of years where I was Mandy and then I was like, wait, I have this better name I should be using. When I was like eight, I think I reclaimed Miranda. Thanks for revealing your true identity. Now that you've said Mandy, I feel like I understand you a lot better now that you're a Mandy from... It's all, all my mystique is gone. I'm just Mandy. Wow, Mandy Grossinger. Yes, a far cry from Miranda July. But you know, Mandy's following a long tradition of Hollywood folks who changed their names, Rico. Of course. For example, uh, do you know who Maurice Micklewhite is? Ben Affleck. Wrong. Michael Caine. Oh. How about William Henry Pratt? Ben Affleck. <laughs> Boris Karloff. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I think he got the naming thing backwards. <laughs> uh, Constantinople? Ben Affleck. You're weird. Folks, we haven't changed the name of our web address. It's still dinnerpartydownload.org. One actor who has not changed his name is John Christopher Riley Jr., better known as John C. Riley. This summer, you can see him in Sasha Baron Cohen's satire, The Dictator. Rico spoke with him last summer. Our guest of honor this week is actor John C. Riley. You have seen him in Oscar-winning films from P.T. Anderson and Martin Scorsese, and broad comedies like Talladega Nights and Walk Hard. This week, he's in the indie film Terry. And John, it is an honor. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. 
I love your character in this movie. You're this sweet kind of straight shooting vice principal who befriends this overweight, troubled kid. My character's both the vice principal in charge of discipline and the guidance counselor, the person that you turn to in your hour of need. So Reflecting our modern economy, I think. Yeah, maybe, maybe that was it. It was downsizing. I don't, I mean, I suppose he has a sweet quality. If anything, he, <laughs> he's such a flawed mentor. He totally loses his cool with some of the kids. He's just really annoyed. And then with other kids, he's totally empowering and makes the kid feel like he's the coolest kid in class. Terry Thompson. There's two groups of kids who stand out here. There's the good-hearted kids and there's the bad-hearted kids. And which one am I? Well, you strike me as one of the good-hearted ones, Terry, which is why I'm upset that we have to meet here today for reasons of discipline. Sit down, Markson! Sam! In the chair! There's something wrong with that kid. All right, he's yelling there. But, I mean, he's still sympathetic to these kids. I mean, even the guy that he's yelling at there, he doesn't think he's a bad-hearted kid. What I think makes this story really special and original is it doesn't have a mean quality. I mean, I'm getting worn down by the celebration of things mean, whether it's a judge on some reality television show judging a contestant in a really mean, kind of inhumane way. I, I just don't find meanness an entertaining or attractive thing to watch. My whole life, I've tried to stay away from mean people <laughs> and tried to avoid being mean myself. You started off in dramatic roles. There was a point where you were in three dramas nominated for Oscars on, in the same year. But if I were to go on the street and ask like a random person, they would probably know you as a comedian. Yeah, you know, those movies are on cable TV a lot. What's in the zeitgeist at the moment is what people know you for. And the fact that those comedies that I made, I'm very proud of, make it a lot easier to accept I think Talladega Nights and Walk Hard are some of the most satiric, intelligent comedy that's been out in like the last 10 years. So, I'm, And it was very, those were all very personal projects for me. I put a lot into those movies. Actually, one of my favorite of your roles is Talladega Nights. You were actually in Days of Thunder, which is basically what Talladega Nights is parodying. What was that like for you while you were shooting Talladega? It was great. It was taken with such reverence and sanctimoniousness, this whole NASCAR world, when we made Days of Thunder, that it was, I was like, oh, come on. It's just like, I remember the day when, I, and, I, and Robert Duvall is one of my favorite actors of all time, but I remember the day when Robert Duvall had to deliver a monologue to the car that I thought, we have just stepped over the boundary of <laughs> something here when one of our greatest actors is being forced to deliver a monologue to a car. All right, we have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Well, it's a two-parter. Someone will say, hey, you're an actor, right? Yeah. Were you in such and such a movie? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't like that one so much. <laughs> and you'd be surprised how often people do that. And they're just being honest. But it's like, you know, really? That's your lead-off question? Okay. <laughs> All right, our second question Tell us something we don't know. Some scintillating fact about myself. It doesn't have to be about yourself. It's like uh, Sally Hawkins told us that uh, crows recognize human faces and pass along that information to their kin. You know, crows can talk. How about that? Really? Yeah. I was at like a bird zoo, an aviary, I guess they call it. And we get to this last cage with an enormous black crow in it. And a sign on the bottom says, hi, my name's Charlie. I can talk. 
And so everyone's standing around going, hey, Charlie, hey, Charlie, Charlie, want a cracker? Hey, Charlie, say something. Hey, Charlie, hello, Charlie. Come on, Charlie, 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 Charlie. And the crow is just like going, caw, looking at people. And just as everyone starts to turn one of their shoulders away from the cage, Charlie goes, who, what, when, where, why? <laughs> as clear as a bell. And everyone shocked, turns back and looks to the cage. And then he goes back to, caw. But now it sounds like he's saying the word caw. Caw in crow means, yeah, that's right. So they're pretty smart birds. I concur. Whoever, who said that? Sally Hawkins, the British actress. Ah, good on you, Sally. You know, Rico, we've heard a lot of animal trivia from movie actors over the years. It's true. We have Riley and Hawkins talked about crows. Right. Emily Blunt taught us about dolphin mating rituals. It's kind of a weird phenomenon. Maybe actors identify with animals. You know, like they're interesting looking <laughs> creatures that people stare at but really don't understand. All right. So <laughs> in that case, National Geographic is like the Us Weekly of the animal world. Something like that, I think. Uh, Look, a giraffe smoking out from the Starbucks. That is <laughs> crazy. <laughs> they're just like us. I got to get a subscription. <laughs> Folks, we're going to take a break. But when we get back, we talk to director Terry Gilliam and best-selling author Jackie Collins gives us a peek into Hollywood life offset. Hint, it's exactly how you think it is when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. You are listening to a special all-movie episode of The Dinner Party. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Terry Gilliam. He of Monty Python fame. Yes, and director of some movies like Brazil and The Fisher King. But first, a little Hollywood glamour, courtesy of best-selling author, socialite, and gadfly, Jackie Collins. Yeah, earlier this year, Jackie stopped by to promote her 17 millionth book, <laughs> and we asked her one of our standard questions, what's the most memorable get-together you've ever been to? Well, here's the thing. I mean, if you were around in the 70s and you went to one of the rock star parties, yes. if you remembered it, it wasn't that memorable because you couldn't remember it. But so maybe no, we seriously, were there, I remember Rico, being I mean, a, a party that the mamas and the papas gave and there was like Japanese porn on the walls, <laughs> films going on and people, you know, great big Silver dishes of Coke everywhere. It was it was totally wild. Wow, silver dishes of Coca Cola. Yeah, that that sounds, sounds amazing. Coca- <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like you were probably really caffeinated. Um, the memorable party that I had was a great a birthday party that I threw for um, Michael Caine. It was I've his heard birthday. of him. And uh, he was doing a movie with Scarlett Johansson, so Scarlett came. And I'm name-dropping now like crazy. Yeah, I like it. But Jack Nicholson happened to be at the party. uh, What? Sitting at the bar hitting on Scarlett. And I went up to Scarlett and I said, I'm bringing out this cake for Michael. And I would love you to sing uh, Happy Birthday. And Jack, who's hitting on her, goes, no, she's too busy. And she goes, no, I'd love to do it. And so I extracted her from Jack Nicholson, and she sung Happy Birthday, Michael Caine, in a Marilyn Monroe voice. Wow. Yeah. As we said at the time, <laughs> as a Los Angelino, that's what you want to believe is happening, a zip code away when you go to bed at night. She's living the dream. Indeed. Uh, but while we're thinking about movie stars and fantastic situations, that's exactly what author Jonathan Lethem did in his piece, The Drew Barrymore Stories. A few months back, he stopped in to read it for us. This is called The Drew Barrymore Stories. I wrote it for a a fashion magazine that was running a giant Drew Barrymore issue, so her face was going to be on the cover, and she was also going to be the curator. 
pick a lot of fashion and stylish things to be photographed for the magazine. And they also wanted a writer to write about her. Well, this is this is what I ended up doing. I guess I just think of her as a kind of effervescent figure who floats over her own celebrity. And so I, I put her in various scenarios where she could do that. The Drew Barrymore stories. One, I was riding in an elevator in a London hotel with Alfred Hitchcock and Drew Barrymore. Alfred Hitchcock said, do you think he opened the box of poisoned chocolates yet? Though I knew it was only one of Alfred Hitchcock's deadpan jokes, I grew nervous. Drew Barrymore smiled and laughed, so infectiously that I couldn't help laughing myself. She said, I took the poisoned chocolates out and replaced them with chocolates filled with sympathy and affection. Even Alfred Hitchcock began laughing now. Two. John Coltrane and Miles Davis and Drew Barrymore and I were backstage at a nightclub in Chicago. Miles Davis was berating John Coltrane for playing a 20-minute solo. I was trying not to be noticed. Drew Barrymore was picking through a box of chocolates an admirer had sent backstage, biting into several of them to examine the filling. John Coltrane said, I don't know how to stop playing. Miles Davis said, just take the damn horn out of your mouth. Drew Barrymore said, or... If you wanted to, you could just begin playing very softly until you were so quiet that the others could play over you. Miles Davis said, that would be fine too, yes. Three, Ernest Hemingway and Howard Hawks and John Coltrane and Drew Barrymore and I were in a fishing boat on the Snake River in Colorado. John Coltrane and Drew Barrymore were baiting fish hooks with whiskey-filled chocolates an admirer had sent to Hemingway. I was trying to make coffee on a Bunsen burner. Howard Hawks said to Ernest Hemingway, I bet you I can make a good movie out of your worst book. Ernest Hemingway said, what book is that? Howard Hawks said, that piece of crap known as to have and have not. Drew Barrymore said, look over there. We all turned and Drew Barrymore pushed Howard Hawks out of the boat. Four. Gertrude Stein and Jack London and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Jack Kerouac and Truman Capote and Drew Barrymore and I were in a large outdoor hot tub in Sausalito playing a drinking game called What's Your Secret? Gertrude Stein said, small audiences. Truman Capote said, it's not your turn, Gertrude, it's Scott's. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, there are no second acts in American lives. I started to ask him whether he meant that American lives skipped straight to the third act, but the others ignored me. Jack London said, if you put some eggshells in with the coffee grounds, it leaches the acid out of the coffee and it tastes a lot better. Jack Kerouac mumbled something nobody could make out, and Truman Capote said, that's not writing, Kerouac, that's typing. Drew Barrymore got out of the hot tub and put on her robe and said, does anyone want hot chocolate instead of coffee? I don't have any eggshells, but I do have marshmallows. Five. I was running in the New York Marathon with Laurence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman and John Coltrane and Drew Barrymore, only Laurence Olivier was riding a banana-yellow moped. Drew Barrymore was accepting orange slices and Dixie cups of chocolate milk from the crowds at the police barriers and laughing infectiously, but Dustin Hoffman and John Coltrane and I were too out of breath to join in. By the time we crossed the Kosciuszko Bridge into Long Island City, Dustin Hoffman looked terrible, and I was concerned he wouldn't be able to finish the race. Laurence Olivier said, what's the matter? Dustin Hoffman said, I was up all last night because I wanted this scene to look realistic. Laurence Olivier said, why don't you try acting, my boy? We all looked at Laurence Olivier like he was an ass. Drew Barrymore said, I know a shortcut. Dustin Hoffman said, to acting? Drew Barrymore said, no, a shortcut. And she pointed past the police barriers at our left. 
We all turned our heads, and when we looked back, she was gone. Author Jonathan Lethem reading his piece, The Drew Barrymore Stories. You can find it in his recently published collection called The Ecstasy of Influence, and that is the first true thing you've heard in the last three minutes or so. And since we're in surreal mode, it makes sense to move on to an interview with a guy who helped create some of the most surreal movie moments of the last half a century or so, Mr. Terry Gilliam. Yes, he was, of course, a founding member of sketch comedy legends Monty Python. Yes. He directed a bunch of their movies. Then he went on to make dark fables like Twelve Monkeys and the classic Brazil. Rico spoke to him a few years back about his movie, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. And Terry, welcome. Hello. This movie is about the storyteller who's telling these very old-fashioned, fanciful stories and nobody in the modern world wants to listen. It begs us to think that that is you, somehow, Mr. Gilliam. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, I think any film director would probably be happy to be as uh, successful as George Lucas or Steven Spielberg in reaching you know, these massive, massive audiences. And it doesn't really happen, so it's very easy to get uh, lost in self-pity and write films like Dr. <laughs> Parnassus. <laughs> This is a result of self-pity? You're going to go on record? Craven self-pity. I was feeling old, unloved, forgotten, and I just fed off that. And I have a wonderful film as a result of it. Now we wait to see if it's going to be successful, because if it isn't, then I'm going to sink into a deeper depression. Really, you care? If I mean, your, your movies are so personal, and they seem to be done with a sense of, like, screw it, I'm going all the way. Do you really care if people embrace it or not? Yeah, I really am... I like when people see my movies and come out and, you know, the world has changed a little bit for them. I'm not just doing it for myself. I mean, by the end of it, I don't even watch the movies. I'm, I apologize for them. I am truly sorry that I inflicted them upon the world. But before that moment of revelation, I want as many people as possible to see it and love my movies. <laughs> well, let me ask you this then. If, if you are Dr. Parnassus... One of the things that happens in the movie is he makes a deal with the devil. He gets immortality in exchange for his daughter. Who is the devil, or what is the devil? Oh, the devil is that moment when you're depressed, when you're feeling weak, and you do something that you'll be ashamed of for the rest of your life. The times that I've actually made compromises in my movies, those are the moments I feel I, 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 talk, I listen to the devil. Well, I mean thinking, sir, that, you know, not many people are attracted to the show. Oh, thank you so much. Well, forgive me, but I, I, I have a couple of solutions to your problems. One, I was thinking of, you know, changing the style of the show. And two, change the audience, perhaps. Change? Yeah. <laughs> but in, in my opinion, I'd change both. But, you know, that's just me. Change the show? Who the freaking hell do you think you are? Dr. Parnassus also is, in some ways, stuck in the past. And it, it seems very clear that you love the past, you love the things of the past and the, the items of the past, but yet you're kind of revolutionary and anarchic in your philosophy in some way. How do you sort of reconcile the fact that in one way you're kind of this conservative, oh, the olden times were better, and this sort of revolutionary anti-authoritarian streak? Life is full of paradoxes. These are the things that always intrigue me. We see, The world tries to make things tidy, and I just want to encourage a paradoxical approach to life. I mean, I think I, I went to Europe and what I loved about living in Europe was I felt I was part of a, a long progression of thousands of years of life and people doing things. It was a way of escaping from the sort of American uh, every day is year zero or day zero of your life approach to life because we're part of this long, long progression. 
And I love that. And I think just because it's new does not make it better. I don't believe in progress in that sense. Uh, it just makes it different. And, and so, yes, I think let's look at the good things of the past. Let's find out what's important in them and see if we can you know, adapt and use that. But I think my attitude in Parnassus is that the modern world is so distracted by other things. They're not even looking at the present. <laughs> Forget about the past. I mean, they're too busy binge drinking, too busy shopping, and, and not looking at the, the wonder of the world. You're sort of an idealist, but it's gone all the way around to cynicism in a way. Uh, I, I don't think if I become totally cynical, because uh, I am a, a bruised idealist, yes, let's put it that way. And I'm probably becoming a curmudgeon, <laughs> but, but I'm not quite yet a cynic. <laughs> all right, we'll find the right label for you eventually. You got together with the Monty Pythons for the first time in a long time recently. Uh, there are notorious you know, artistic differences amongst those people. Was it a clash or a, a joy? No, I mean, that's why Mo Python is dead, because we all like each other now. What made that group interesting is that we all were, I wouldn't say warring all the time, but there was a constant tension. But it was a tension about trying to be as good as possible, to be as excellent as we could be. And everybody felt they were the best. Each person did. <laughs> and that now we're just a bunch of old, cuddly men who just like each other. And that doesn't make for good television. <laughs> you should just start a sitcom. You can be the wacky neighbor next door. <laughs> Actually, what I wanted to do in that New York show, which I just... The, the reunion show. Yeah, we were in the Ziegfeld Theater a couple of weeks ago. And I wanted the curtain to open, and the six of us, or five of us, would be there. Graham would be as a cardboard cutout. And we'd just be sitting around a table with, with waiters and having dinner and just talking amongst ourselves, and the audience could watch us eat and talk. <laughs> I think people would actually love that. So it would be like my dinner with Andre gone haywire. Exactly. My dinner with Andre and Andre and Andre and Andre and Andre and on and on and Andre. <laughs> So, uh, speaking of old things, one of the things apparently visually that you based a lot of, you know, the set pieces of Dr. Parnassus upon are these kind of old cardboard theaters that used to be sold as toys. And I, I understand you went to some place called the Museum of Childhood, which sounds like the title of a film you would make. What is the Museum of Childhood? You went to find these cardboard theaters. No, it's just just this big hall full of dead babies. It's a horrible place. I don't know why people... Have a That's still a perfect movie for you. <laughs> It's just, it's basically, it's in London, and it has all these toys from, you know, the ages. And it's fantastic when you see what kids have played with and made into uh, great bits of their imagination. A little piece of wood, you know, you spin it, ah, and suddenly you've got a whole universe going on. And now all of our toys are so complicated, and they're basically doing the work for us, which is the, you know, that's the death of imagination. Nothing better than a couple of sticks and a stone, and, and you can invent the world. Um, so... And it did have these beautiful Victorian uh, theaters, uh, which I've always loved. There's something about those little worlds. It's a little world that in that you can put mountains and princes and fairy tales and you know, anything in them. And, and I suppose that element of my childhood I, I cling to. I don't want to lose that. And, and, and films, in a sense, are a way of doing that, where I get to play with the toys again, and I get to make things real, even though it's all artifice that we're doing. We have two standard questions on the show. Okay. The first is, uh, what question should we not ask you at a dinner party? What is the question you are least happy getting asked at dinner parties? <laughs> Why don't people like your movies, Terry? 
Do people actually ask you that? Yeah, I think they think I'm successful and it's the only way they can cut me off at the knees. They break my heart every time. It just hurts. Because the thing is, it's not like you haven't made hits. No, my, my run has been very, very good. That's the good thing. I've made a lot of money. Even, even the ones that do less when they come out do incredibly well in the long term. Something like Fear and Loathing did. But why do you have this sort of reputation as being somebody that's, you know, plagued by disaster? Because the press is lazy. No comment. <laughs> I'm one of the most successful filmmakers out there, but I've got this reputation, which in a strange way I kind of enjoy because it keeps these really crap scripts from being sent to me. All right, our second and final question. Tell us something we don't know. Here's a really interesting thing that I just found out the other day. Uh, in Dr. Parnassus, the end scene takes place with Parnassus selling toys to children. Now, that scene was based on Georges Méliès, the famous silent filmmaker, who, in his dotage, had run out of money and opened a little stall outside of one of the train stations in Paris selling toys to children. Yeah. I found out the train station outside of which his stall stood was... Mount Parnasse, Mount Parnassus. Whoa! Oh, babe! Oh, spooky! I love his maniacal laugh. <laughs> he is an exuberant, <laughs> it's amazing, an exuberant <laughs> fellow. I like thinking of what it must have been like while he was making the film version of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Him, Johnny Depp, and Hunter Thompson all in the same room together. Yeah, now that's a party for Jackie Collins. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> all right, well, traditionally we end our show with some music. Yeah. We thought a film soundtrack would be appropriate. And here's the weirdest example we've encountered. Earlier this year, we asked Ethan Miller of the band Helen Rain to give us a few tunes to play as a soundtrack for a dinner party. Instead, he told us what he plays on tour. The first track is the title music from a Clockwork Orange soundtrack. Um, I don't know exactly how this came back to me, but for some reason I thought this soundtrack would be a good thing to have in the van. There's something about tour that's both sort of exhilarating and, and beautiful, and uh, there's also this element of doom, this kind of ever-pending doom that surrounds you. The Moog performances on the Clockwork Orange soundtrack are by the great Wendy Carlos. This is the person that did the uh, Switched on Bach and, um, you know, a lot of the early symphonic Moog records. And the title song specifically, I don't know, there's something baffling and beautiful about classical music made by electronic, dark, synthesized, hard instruments that reflect the inner battle of, of a young man's humanity and his psychosis. Very, very beautiful and very dark. <laughs> I even got into, like I had this little portable player and I started waking the guys up sometimes in the morning, you know, when it was time to get up and go, I'd <laughs> take the portable player and play this. It's kind of grim. And that's the toe tapping end of this all-movie <laughs> summer blockbuster episode of The Dinner Party, folks. Fun. Let's roll the end credits, shall we? Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Thanks also to Brendan Willard, Bill Lance, Peter Clowney, Judy McAlpin, and our friends at Public Radio's business show, 
marketplace. Next week, film geeks will be delighted to know legendary German filmmaker Wim Wenders will be on our program. Also, we asked Mr. Sulu, George Takei, for etiquette tips. I'd be more than happy to accommodate. Am I doing this for a fee? The answer is no, by the way. Till then, you can download podcasts of all our shows at dinnerpartydownload.org. That's a wrap.